0: Hello and welcome to Lat the Stone Speak, a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology. I'm Brent Noctigall here in Jerusalem. Light late last night I spoke with Dr. Scott Stripling. He was in Tennessee about to present uh, some more of his findings that was released to the public on Thursday. This was probably or is the one of the most dramatic discoveries ever in the history of biblical archaeology, and it is set to revolutionize the understanding of the early writing of the Bible related to the periods of the first five books of the Bible, Joshua, Judges, uh, writing in the writing in those time periods. I'm, of course, talking about the discovery of a tiny curse tablet, two centimeters by t- two centimeters, with 40 proto-alphabetic letters on them, or very, very, very early Hebrew, we could put it that way. This, is again, is the oldest uh, proto-alphabetic script that's ever been found in the land of Israel, and it was found on the mountain of curse where the Bible says that Joshua assembled half the tribes of Israel uh, right after they took part of the promised land and they had an altar there where they sacrificed to God and renewed their their covenant. This is, again, it's it's impossible to overestimate how important this discovery is for the world of biblical archaeology and the understanding of the writing of the Bible. And there is a tidbit inside this interview that you wouldn't have heard before, even if you've been tracking all the news of the discovery uh, related to some other words that are that are there uh, on the on the um, on the inscription, and so you'll be look for, looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to have a little write up about the significance of that um, in in the next couple of days at ArmstrongInstitute.org, so you can be watching for that as well. I don't really dwell on too much of the significance of that uh, inside the interview, but we will certainly write that up so you can see why it is significant that you had two names of. God back to back the word L uh, for, for God, L, and then Yahweh, straight after another. Again, on a 14th, 13th century uh, piece of writing. Uh, Absolutely phenomenal discovery. Please enjoy this interview uh, with Dr. Scott Stripling. I'm here with Dr. Scott Stripling, the provost at the, at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas, as well as the director of the renewed Shiloh Excavations. And also the director of a sifting project that took place back in 2019 in the North Central Highlands of uh, uh, what's known as the West Bank or uh, Samaria. And he is the leader of a team that has an absolute dramatic discovery, one of the most important discoveries in biblical archaeology. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Brent. So I, I want to get your feedback, first of all, about the press conference that took place on Thursday, uh, I think it was about 10 a.m. Central Time, where you unveiled this inscription, uh, a curse tablet from around 3,400 years ago that has some very important writing on it. What was the reaction inside the, inside the room there in Houston where you were delivering this? And what has happened since? I even noticed that it was on Drudge Report. So
1: it's getting worldwide attention, this discovery. Um, the atmosphere was pretty electric uh, in the room. I mean, people were there because they, they knew that we were going to be making a big announcement. And uh, it was it was pretty electric. And then we, of course, had people from around the world that were participating virtually in the press conference as well. So yeah, I was pretty pleased with the outcome. And you were presenting this discovery of two
0: other scholars uh, a Haifa University, Professor Gershon Galil, as well as a professor from Germany, Peter van der Veen. They were the epigraphers that helped you out with the de- deciphering <clears throat> of this inscription. Please, if you could, first of all, tell us what the inscription says, and uh, then we'll get some back into some of the dating of the inscription and why it's important from, from that standpoint.
1: Well, it's a curse tablet. There were 40 letters that we were able to identify on the inside of the tablet and uh, 23 words all together. The word cursed is repeated 10 times and uh, the name, the divine name Yahweh appears twice. And so uh, it's a curse tablet, two by two centimeters folded from Manibal, Mount the mountain of the curse, And uh, proclaims essentially what I believe is a self-imprecatory or binding covenantal type curse, as we read in in Joshua 8. So Joshua 8, if we go to the Bible,
0: it describes, I think, in verse 30 or 31, how -hmm. Joshua, after conquering Jericho and and I... um, as you would say, they go up to this location and to renew the covenant with God after just taking the promised land, or at least their initial strike on the promised land, I suppose, and Joshua builds an altar. And this discovery that you've made of an inscription on this mountain is very much related to, to this uh, this altar that you believe Joshua Joshua built.
1: I, I think so. Um, epigraphically, it's it's pretty clear that this is an LB2 inscription. And so it's very early, and I think it's pretty clear that it's the oldest Hebrew inscription that we have to date. It's what I would call a proto-alphabetic or proto-Hebraic inscription. And um, it, how specific can we be? Um, I think it's, it's a bit open-ended. Um, we can interpret that as the very beginning of LB2, um, around 1400. You could interpret it as toward the end of LB2, and perhaps an individual later in the altar's use, you know, may have placed it there. So, you know, folks may have different views on that, but the the style of the writing and the derivation of the actual mineral composition Mm -hmm. of the lead uh, points definitely to LB2.
0: So I'll I'll get back to this in a second, but I, I guess I should set it up a little bit more for people slightly unfamiliar with the biblical history of this place, Um, Perhaps you can just talk about what the the tribes were doing on Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and then um, maybe a little bit of the detail of Professor Zertal's excavations in the 80s and the pushback he got. Um, He since died in 2015 after making some dramatic discoveries. Yours kind of comes along and says, I think Zertal was right, (laughs) Uh, very much so. So maybe the bit of the background of the biblical picture and then, what, what Zertal found, and then how you added to Zertal's
1: findings through this inscription. Okay, sure. <clears throat> well, first, let me give you an anecdotal story. And if I if I forget what the original question was, you'll have to remind That's me. That's fine. Um, Larry Steger from Harvard um, famously said, if Zertal is right and there is an altar on Mount Ibal, then we scholars all need to go back to kindergarten. And uh, so... <laughs> We would now say that class is in session, I suppose, for the kindergarten class. There's a whole lot of rethinking that needs to be done. And I think that is uh, vindicated. But uh, your question was, what is the what were the tribes doing there? So they have victory at Jericho. They have a victory at Ai after a defeat at Ai. And Moses had told them in Deuteronomy 27, when you come into the land and gain a foothold, which is now what they had after the victories at Jericho and Ai, you're going to go north to, um, he doesn't mention Shechem because it didn't need to be mentioned. They knew that Shechem was between Mount Gerizim and Mount uh, You're going to go and place six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessings, six of the tribes to pronounce curses. He also did not need to explain that that's point four of how covenant is made in the late Bronze Age. They knew that. We're the mm-hmm. ones who, you know, have to have to get historical context on it. So this is all about covenant renewal. So the Ark of the Covenant is in the middle, where Tel Balate is today, ancient Shechem, <clears throat> six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other, binding themselves in this covenantal agreement. So point four of a late Bronze Age covenant, a uh, five-point covenant, would be to bind yourself on an oath that involves blessings and curses. Um, Joshua 830 says that then Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal, and uh, they wrote the words of the law there on on plastered stones and wrote the words of the law. And it is there in that altar context with the earlier, smaller round altar later covered by a rectangular altar to venerate and protect it that um, from that, refuse or that dump that we were able to recover this tablet
0: so zertal excavates this area in the mid-80s he takes off a bunch of stones off the top of this big heap of stones uh he finds a structure that i think by 1982 or 3 he believes is an altar structure um he finds a lot of other uh discoveries that is um showing that showing that this was sacrificial site. You've got lots of burnt bones and, and other uh, elements that could be used in that service as well. And then with all of his dirt, he's got to put it somewhere as he removes it. And you basically took his dumps of dirt that I guess he put somewhere near to the site. And then you back in 2019 said, Hey, we don't have much to do right now. Perhaps Corona's on. Um, (laughs) let's go back there and investigate that dirt. Well,
1: that's almost entirely correct. This was just pre-corona, but we often do winter projects. And so I've got students that we're always trying to train and they need field work time. And over the years, I have found some very valuable things we can do in the wintertime. And you're sort of rolling the dice on the weather, whether you're going to have, especially up there, I suppose. (laughs) But for us, it it was a good gamble because it could not have been any better. I mean, it was sunny and cool and great working weather so much better than the blistering heat of the summertime. But uh, yeah, that's what we did. We uh, were able to relocate about 30% of his dumps. So we had an East dump and a West dump and a central dump. So we took about 30% of the overall dump material 75% 75% of which came from the East dump and about 25% from the West dump. We kept track of which was from which in case mm-hmm. there was an important find from one dump or the other, because we knew that from his own notes, that the material from the altars had gone into the East dump.
0: Material from the inside of the altar or from outside of the altar?
1: Um, inside the altar, because there wasn't really any outside. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there were, there were um, features, installations on the outside. Um, And those, if they were in in immediate proximity to the altar, they ended up in the East Dump also.
0: Okay. Okay. And so you went and you decided, and I I do want to just give you a shout out for this, because this is not something that is the most glorious thing to do Mm -hmm. in archaeology. There is no, you're not you know, excavating a structure yourself, whatever it was, was found. You're basically going through someone else's trash. (laughs) Uh, The things that they didn't find, you're going to go and have a look and second, a second look through it with an updated technology to see what else you're able to discover. And you pretty much struck the most glorious thing that you could even possibly imagine. So well done to you and your team for going back there and doing what other people might thought, might have thought was kind of perhaps a worthless endeavor. Um, and then tell us about how this discovery was made uh, in that
1: sifting project. Well, I had experimented for a couple of years dealing with old dump piles uh, that we had at Shiloh. We had a Danish excavation there in the 1920s and 30s. We had an Israeli excavation from the 80s. And so I had sampled those dump piles and wet sifted them. And what I had found was staggering for like every one glyptic find that they had had uh, publicized, like um, scarabs, bula, so forth for every one that they had published, I was finding four in their dump pile. Mm-hmm. And so I knew based on that, and of course, Herschel Shanks had been beating this drum for many years, you know, go wet sift the the uh, Megiddo dump piles. Of course, they're like mountains at, at Megiddo. But uh, so I was eager to do this. And so when the opportunity came about, it did not surprise me that we found important glyptic uh, remains in this dump. So you said you have, you located 30% or
0: you're, there is 70% still there to sift?
1: Still, still 70% there. Okay. Those are my estimates. Yeah, They're your estimates. So there's still plenty of more. Um, right. This was kind of a test case, you know, and uh, it just so happens, uh, I don't want to say we struck gold, but uh, at the press conference, I, I told the story that the final day in the planning stage, when Aaron Lipkin and I were strategizing on the front end of this, um, we had done one last visit to the site and we, pulled away and stopped and looked back to take a picture and it had rained a bit earlier and there was a rainbow over the altar. And uh, so, you know, there's a legend of a pot of gold at the uh, (laughs) end of the rainbow. So I guess I would say that we found a pot of lead at the end of the rainbow.
0: Yeah, uh, completely. And hopefully you get some support to, to go back there and continue more, see what else you can find. Um, Well, it makes
1: one, makes one wonder, right? Was this the only tablet there? If it's the only, let's say that we did the rest of the dump. Um, in a perfect world, and we didn't get any other leg curse tablets, then it would lead me to think that this was a singular titular type of tablet mm-hmm. that was done on behalf of the nation. Everyone. Right. If we found multiples in there, then maybe we would begin to think that you know maybe people from time to time, knowing that this was the altar Manival, uh, had gone back and placed these in sort of a self-binding, self imprecatory way.
0: So let's just talk about the amount of firsts and earliest and, mm. uh, related to this, um, tablet. Um, you said that it's the earliest Hebrew. How, how early is it compared to the latest f- the, the other find, uh, the slightly later find, I guess, or yeah, slightly later find, um, slightly more recent find. Um, and then the, the, the mention of the word God on there or the Hebrew version of God, um, that's the first as
1: well, correct? Right. So it's uh, let me unpack that a little bit. <clears throat> Most people right now would say that maybe the Kayafa, Astrakhan is the earliest example. That's around 1000 BC, roughly. And if we're you've talking the, about- You've some,
0: got the Jerobal inscription, which is, that's
1: about eleven, Maybe 100 years right? before that, right. If you're, right. If we're seeing that as, as true transitional Hebrew, that's right. Then that would be even 100 years before that. Um so we would be talking about, let's say that's around 1,100, uh, and that we were accepting that. Now we're talking about something that's 1,200 to 1,400, so mm-hmm. anywhere from 100 to 300 years older than that. Um, now, there there is like the new Lachish Milk Bowl um that is out there. M- most scholars that are writing about this are s- seeing that as, as Canaanite, but I think time may may show that it's actually a transitional, transitional script as well. Uh, Doug Petrovich just wrote an article um, in a popular magazine, Bible and Spade, um, on that. Uh, you know, and so it hasn't gone through peer review, and we don't know what acceptance that might have. But um, that could potentially be from that same time period as well.
0: But even so, you have a, a very early uh, Hebrew or, or proto-alphabetic inscription, the earliest that's been found most likely in in the land of Israel. Um, and it has it has the word twice relating to God,
1: yeah, the divine name. That's what's amazing. Um, it's it's really amazing and it's three letters um, instead of the four which you would see elsewhere. Right. So why is that? Okay, but it's not standardized. You have to remember, even in the even in the biblical text, even in the later Masoretic text, um, you even have a two-letter abbreviation for Yahweh in Isaiah, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's not a standardization, and certainly early on, there's no standardization that has uh, has set in. <clears throat> um, so this very early mention of the divine name, and think about it, it's juxtaposed because you also, and I did not bring this out at the press conference. So, if you were trying to get something that nobody else knew, you just got it because I just mm-hmm. remembered this. Um, you also have El, like the God Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So, God there is El, the God Yahweh. So, there you have a juxtaposition. Oh, of, that's actually
0: mentioned in the on the inscription? Or, or explain?
1: Yeah when it in oh, on line yeah, yeah, yeah. One, it says, says this. God, i'll just read the,
0: i'll read the inscription just in case because we haven't okay. got to that yet it says cursed 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 by the god yahweh you will die cursed cursed you will surely die cursed by yahweh cursed 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 so the first mention of uh the curse by yahweh it says the god
1: uh, yahweh yeah i didn't god mention. yahweh so and, the word that we're translating as god there is El. yes Okay, right. so this is what I'm saying. You have so this, is the early,
0: this is the earlier use of, of God's name as would take place in the patriarchs, that with some variation, uh, if, if that's correct. Um, and then you have the, the new name for God that was around Moses' time, if that's correct. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I'm just pointing out that it's a juxtaposition of both names there. El mm-hmm. and Yahweh are side by side. And that's, I think, very significant also yeah amazing and so
0: this is this has gone out to the world now um i imagine there's some people that are dying to see the scans that you took that you based your your um your reading of this inscription from how soon can they be expected and um how confident you are that the uh, are you that this this reading will hold
1: um, we're going to do our best to have the article finished in six weeks or so. Uh, we're well into it right now. Needless to say, we need to dot every i and cross every t. Um, you do. Then go, you do yeah. you have to do that with this <laughs> with this discovery,
0: because oh, if or you like haven't, it, it, so they'll
1: be on your back. We're uh, making a list and checking it twice. So yep. we once it, once we finish it, then it will need to go through peer review. And some journals are fast with that. Some are slow. We can't control that. It could be one month or three months. And then, you know, it has to, their next publication date uh, would come up. So I'm hoping by the end of the summer that we have a final peer-reviewed scientific academic article and folks can see the scans. We'll make everything available. Um, I I will just warn everyone in advance that it will take other scholars a little practice to get used to reading scans. You know, this comes through lead. And it's, you know, we've had a long time to work with these. And so now we were able to see them. So um, if a scholar were to get these today, they might look at them and not even recognize it, but their, their eyes will acclimate and they'll be able to to see what we're seeing.
0: And so back to the dating of this inscription and what it says for the writing of the Bible, I think this is probably the one of the biggest takeaways. You haven't just confirmed, I would say, a biblical event is taking place, what, what the Bible describes as Joshua being there on the mountain, the mountain of curse, you have a curse tablet says curse, curse, curse. you got the name of the Israelite God, all that checks out to kind of really back up a biblical event. But then what does your inscription say to the writing of the Bible? How early the Bible was written? Was it written by eyewitnesses in many ways, as the Bible describes with a bit of editing by, by later biblical figures or perhaps Mm -hmm. Um, does that all
1: check out now or, or, what? How does, how does your discovery relate to that? Well, there's been a long-standing debate. Uh, was the Bible written in the generation in which the events occurred, or was it written a little later or a lot later? And so uh, we have many, many scholars who think that the Bible was not written, the text was not written. Maybe there were sources that existed, but the text as we know it was not written until the Persian or even the Hellenistic period. Uh, and one of the main reasons that they used to make their case is that uh, there was not literacy in this early time period, uh, just after the Exodus. And there wasn't an alphabetic language even that could have been used. So if you were writing with hieroglyphs, for example, with hundreds and hundreds of hieroglyphs, you you would have needed a library to write the Pentateuch. But with a phonetic language, you could do it in a very, very compressed manner. I think what this does, Brent, is it uh, makes it more difficult for people to hold that position. Mm -hmm. and it makes it um, easier for those who believe that to hold that position. And for those in the middle, hopefully from my perspective, at least, it encourages them to move to the side that uh, the text was written at an early date. This is
0: what uh, professor Galil noted at the press conference. He said this, the scribe that wrote this could have written every chapter in the Bible. No one can claim that the Bible was written in later periods because they were able to write it very, very early. And, I think for for people that want to um, really support and believe in the biblical narrative, I mean, this discovery, it does so much more than just prove a biblical event. It, it We're talking about Moses here, Moses and Joshua. I mean, the earlier- Well, right,
1: because you said earlier, you, you joked about me, you know, don't you have anything better to do than to go through somebody else's trash? Tongue in cheek, you were talking, of course, but you have to remember, Brent, this isn't just anybody's trash, okay? Right. This is Joshua's trash. Right. So- you know, this is this is good stuff.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. And and I think people can come away and say now, well, well, hang on a minute. I've been told that the Bible is a bunch of myths. Perhaps it was written at the earliest, you know, by some people people say around Josiah's time, and they're projecting back on, you know, all these events that so-called happen happened. But we're talking about the earliest books of the Bible now that are right. written. Uh, that we have evidence that the scribe knew what he was doing. Perhaps you can talk about what was used in the writing uh, of this tablet and the fact it was on lead and how that relates
1: to other books of the Bible. Before I do, let me briefly say this. Like, how would a scribe in Josiah's time, um, how would he have known that there was an altar on Mount Yvonne? Right. You know, those are the types of details. Because by that point, we know that archaeologically, that it was totally covered with stone. There was an, a mantle over it. How would he have known that? So just something to think about. How, how was it written? Um, I, what was often done was lead was taken in, in strips and when it was malleable, it could be written on and they would use an iron pin, iron being harder than lead and uh, a type of stylus with a fine point on it and inscribe it. And then once the inscription was complete because by writing it down, it becomes binding. It's a covenantal legal covenantal act, sort of like a marriage. You know, it's yeah. the couple signs it, the minister signs it. Now this is uh, this is a legally binding sort of a thing. So it's written down, it's binding, it's sealed, and it can't be opened because now it becomes brittle once it cools. So it's the sealing of it that makes it permanent. We have uh, a couple of verses in the Bible that illustrate this. Uh, Job, most of us would think is the oldest book of the Bible or Job along with Genesis, um, maybe Job is predating the Pentateuch because there's no reference to the Pentateuch in it. You have in Job 1924, a mention of writing on lead with an iron pen. Mm-hmm. And so there you go, that's, that's late Bronze Age period. That's very early. There's that concept of writing with an iron pen onto lead.
0: And that's what you have. And, and you said you mentioned in the press conference that the lead itself is very significant. That helps out in the dating. You don't just have the the style of the the characters that are that the, the protoalphabetic script that matches the dating that we're looking
1: for, um, but also the lead uh, isotope, I guess, backs that up. The lead analysis um, from Professor uh, Naama yahalom from Hebrew University. Um, indicates that the iron ores come from the Aegean, specifically Lavrion in Greece, where there are well-known mines there. Mm-hmm. And these mines were in use during the late Bronze Age. Do they have um, a Do they
0: have a smaller window of use
1: or is it just in no, the late they're Bronze used in Age all the way till here. today? Or? No, no, no. It's it's uh, for sure uh, uh, late Bronze Age and Iron Age, but I think also back into the middle Bronze Age. Okay. Um, so you, you have this window there so, I'm not saying that the lead analysis or the metallurgy proves that it's late Bronze Age. What I'm saying is <clears throat> that if we did not have that, then there would be an open ended question. Okay. What we do know is that this lead from this particular mine in Lavrion, that the mine was in use at that time. So, right. it sort what open ended question
0: that. would you have?
1: Well, for example, you, you could say that. <clears throat> There is, there are no other examples of lead from that mine in the late Bronze Age. Therefore, this is not late Bronze Age. Right, right. Some one could argue that, but that cannot be argued because we have many examples of and late th- Bronze This, late this, this
0: would also prove that it wasn't. You know, nobody did anything nefarious on your team. Right.
1: Yeah, I, I, I wish I was smart enough to do this. Um, I saw <laughs> because we had put out the press release the day before, and I saw s- some wise guy posted online, some, some wannabe posted online that this is clearly a fake. <laughs> I just laughed like you haven't even seen it yet. <clears <Yeah>. <clears <throat> you know, I can be proclaiming a fake. And uh, if only I were smart enough to figure out how to uh, get inside of this tablet and write in proto-alphabetic script.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I, I did have one more question about how you foresee this this going going forward. You said in the press conference at, after it that there's potentially you're going to be looking at some of the the plastered stones or the plaster that that was related to the altar of to the altar area. Um, what does the Bible say about this, and and why could this be significant? Also, okay,
1: so Joshua is commanded to plaster stones and to write the words of the law on them there. And so, Professor Zertal did recover a significant amount of plaster, some of which is, has a flat surface on it <clears throat> to the naked eye. They could not see anything back in the 1980s, but he did save it. And um, it is now in the custody of a Shaibar professor at uh, Haifa University. And uh, Dr. Barris told me that he has plans in the near future. Maybe this is going to <laughs> encourage him to speed it up, uh, <laughs> to, to analyze that. I mean, we've been talking about this for years and I said, you know, let's get infrared and ultraviolet lighting and, you know, let's, let's check this. And, uh, the last time i talked with him, that is, uh, no longer in the back burner, it's on the front burner. So it will be fascinating if, uh, if we have writing on that plaster also. So here you would have, and I would assume it would be the same style right um right if it if it wasn't that would become an enormous enigma you know how do we have this this lb script and then if it weren't so i'll assume that it's going to be um that would just be phenomenal
0: absolutely phenomenal if it's a a, yeah a copy of the lore uh written on this
1: and you've got yeah yeah i mean in a sense i people were asking me what do you hope is on the tablet Said well, in my per in my perfect world, it's a verse from Deuteronomy twenty seven or something like that. But um, in a sense, that's what this is. This is almost a summary mm-hmm. of what you read there. It's almost right. a summary of the curses,
0: right? And so, I, so w- when they deposited this, it was kind of like you know, I'm a, the, we're making covenant and we agree to this covenant, and this this tablet kind of proves that I agree. And if I fail on my part of the covenant, I'm laying a curse on myself, or I'm agreeing to be cursed. Is that kind of, I guess? That's exactly
1: it. But let me add one thing to that. I am agreeing, but I'm leaving this, this agreement. I'm leaving it on the altar. Right. And what happens at the altar? Blood sacrifice. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so even though if I do violate the terms of the covenant, there's an altar on Nanival. and I can have that curse remitted. There is a propitiation. It's if I don't repent, if I don't accept responsibility, that that's going to come upon me. So it's not like an, um, because who would want to do that? Everybody knows human nature. We're going to sin. We're going to fail. So it's not just that it's a curse, but it's that it's a curse. I'm leaving on the altar. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Okay, well, thank you so much. I should tell everybody listening that I had recorded something with uh, Dr. Stripling at 4am Houston time as he was waiting for his plane to, well, just before his plane boarded and the audio just did not come through for us. And so he graciously uh, agreed to do this uh, late Saturday night, my time. And so Thank you so much for for coming out and doing it again. It's
1: probably good that your audio failed because I hadn't slept in two days. So (laughs) that may have been pretty incoherent. So hopefully this is better.
0: Meant to be. Well, I think we got a bit more information out of you this time as well. Again, thanks so much for uh, coming onto our show and thanks so much for uh, the, the time and effort you put forward into these excavations at these conquest sites. I don't think there's anything that's more important um, as far as really pushing back against the narrative of the conquest, the taking of Israel, the mm-hmm. taking of Cain and by the Israelites, how that happened and really kind of pushing the, the, the biblical date for that as well um, on these different sites. And you've been at the forefront of this for probably three decades now, something like that. Um, and so the, the ball keeps on rolling and more evidence is produced. And thanks a lot to your work.
1: Well, thank you, Brent. And let me also say that I appreciate the work that you guys have done on the Ophel, and um, I think that's vital work as well. Um, I, you know, having worked at Shatim, at uh, at um, I, if you will, Kirby Delmakader, at Shiloh, and now Manibal, it does give you sort of a broader regional view of, of conquest. And of course, Jerusalem is vital to that too. So appreciate your your words and appreciate your good work.
0: Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for watching the interview with Dr. Stripling. If you'd like to receive our magazine or follow our content, you can go to armstronginstitute.org. There we have a brief, or you can sign up for our brief email that comes out basically every time we have some new content on the website, so probably two or three times a week. You can also sign up for free for our biblical archaeology magazine, Let the Stones Speak. This will be sent to you six times a year for free. You can renew for free. We'll never, ever, ever ask for your financial details. No credit card numbers, no nothing. You'll always get it for free. That's our promise to you. And so if you want to receive this, all this information, uh, particularly related to the altar in this latest edition, in your uh, to to come to your mailbox a hard copy. That's how I like to read things if I can. Uh, please do sign up at the website also. If you want to send some feedback or sign up probably the old-fashioned way, you can write a you can write your emails to letters at armstronginstitute.org. That'll come to me and I'll make sure that you get on our mailing list. Thank you very much for listening again to today's podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast if you like, and if you found it beneficial to yourself, uh, and this is the type of content that you can expect going forward from our podcast, Let the Stones Speak. Have a great day.